Uh, let, me, let me start this morning by giving a few lines from some uh, mostly famous songs, and let's see if you can first spot the, spot the line, what song it's coming from, but then also think about the, the main message of the song. Okay, I'll give you a quick line. I'll, I'll give a little bit of melody. Don't, uh, don't expect much out of my melody. But uh, here's the first line. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Yeah? All right, now suppose I told you I, sometimes when I'm having a hard week, I am in the car and I, I sing that to myself. Okay? And the next song, we'll, we'll come back to all of these. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Okay, you got that one? Again, what's the main message of the song is what we're after. Uh, one more. O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. And what's the main point of the song? Now, what I'm trying to do is illustrate something here for us. Uh, for the first one, uh, you might have caught, it's, uh, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. If I told you that I sing that song to myself when I'm having a hard week in the car, you might hear it and say, oh, he's, he's, he's letting his, his soul to know that regardless of the circumstances, I can be content because I have God. I know the Lord, and my soul can be well. Or the second one, if I was having a hard week and I, I sang, uh, the, the lines went uh, through many toil, to, toils and danger, dangers and toils, and danger, through many dangers, what, whatever, you know the line better than I do, right? And if I said that, uh, and that I sing that when I'm having a hard week, that comes from amazing grace. The, the idea would be that God's grace has brought me this far, his grace will get me to the end. And I, I lean on his grace today, I bank on it, he's going to get me through. Or if I was having a hard week and I sing uh, the line, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, it's, it's simply like pausing to say, you know what, I'm going to praise God regardless of what's going on, right? How great thou art. You are great. Regardless of my circumstances, those might change, but you are great forever, right? What I'm trying to illustrate here is that all I have to do is give you a quick line, but the, and, and I told you I sing this line. You, if you know that song, you get transported to that song quickly, and you know the whole point of the song, right? You know that I'm not just singing about the toils and dangers and snares, but I'm singing about God's grace, God's grace wasn't even in the line that I gave you. But you know intuitively, oh, he's talking about God's amazing grace that's going to be there for him. Now, we do this sort of thing in our communication uh, regularly where we kind of transport one another back to something, but it, it, it involves the whole point. Now, as we're doing, going through Advent, the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew does this quite uh, often where he quickly quotes from the Old Testament, and we're... we're we tend to be accustomed to just quickly breeze over that. And in our passage today, we'll see a geological or a geographical uh, reference. And we just think, oh yeah, uh, Bethlehem. And we move on. But Matthew uh, wants us to, to understand the whole message of, of the prophet. 
because that, that reference comes with weight to it. And uh, I think Matthew would want all of his readers to know first what Micah's talking about, so that when you hear the quote from Micah, you go, oh, that's what he means. So we're going to start out with Micah real quick. This is where we do a little bit of heavy lifting early on, and then we'll go into the story uh, as Matthew tells it, and hopefully it'll make perfect sense. All right? So let's just swim around here and explore Micah's uh, main point. Uh, if you get nothing from the Micah part, you've got to catch these three things that he's trying to communicate. There is going to come a Davidic king. When that Davidic king comes, he is going to shatter the enemies of God's people. Just absolutely destroy them. And three, when that Davidic king comes, he's going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. It's going to extend beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. He will shepherd all those who are his. Now, Micah starts out his book, you know, the, the role of a prophet is tough business, right? If you know a prophet, a lot of the prophets were killed uh, because part of the, what they do is, is they're always condemning the crowd, right? They're pointing out their sin, and the reason why you're experiencing hardship in the world right now is because you've disobeyed Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, the covenant that God gave you. And all you're experiencing right now is from Deuteronomy 28. And you know what the next step is? More judgment. So if you keep disobeying, if you keep oppressing people, if you keep you know, doing these things that you're doing and just abusing the law, more oppression's coming. And he just goes right down the list of Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. is common throughout the prophets. And oftentimes what they do is they actually they, uh, live out the message or they, they wear it on their sleeves, so to say. So Micah, actually, uh, he, he tells us early in his book that he will walk around stripped so he's He's not naked, but he's got a lot of his clothes off, and he's walking around town, and he says he's going to howl like the jackals. So there you have Micah walking around, kind of stripped with hardly any clothes on, walking through the city. Now, I don't, I thought that was a good jackal. Go ahead and you, you YouTube that one. I don't know. It's, it's a hard, it's, it's a hard, it's a high-pitched howl. The, the, what he's trying to illustrate is this is what you're going to be. This is going to be your experience. You are going to be totally stripped from opposing countries because God's bringing more judgment on you because you continue to reject God's rule. And you're going to be like the jackal howling. And the first three chapters are nothing but that. It's just all God's, God is bringing more discipline your way. But then when we get to chapter 4, chapter 4 and 5, there's a major shift. And you see that right in 4.1, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now he's going to shift, and yes, God's going to bring his discipline on you. But there is coming a messianic age, a golden age, when it all gets reversed. All the judgment, all the discipline will be done, and God will come. He will shatter your enemies, and he will shepherd his people to the ends of the earth. Now, if you look in chapter 4, the parts that Sam read, uh, right at the end of uh, verse 1 there, the people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. He's talking about nations from far away. As the passage goes on, it talks about the, the law going out from Zion and many nations benefiting. 
So this is the idea of God lifting up Zion, or which is, which is Israel, or uh, more, more in particular, uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, holding it up. The unique dwelling place of God where God's people live and God dwells with his people and the voice of God will go out to the ends of the earth. This is the Abrahamic blessing coming to fruition. This is what Micah is pointing to. It's coming. God is going to bring a great reversal, a messianic age. Look at the, the word picture that he gives us in verse 3. Right in the middle it says, they, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's the idea of taking the metal, which is normally used for weapons, the swords, and they're going to be now harvest tools because there will be no more war. A time of peace is coming. It will be bliss. You won't need any weapons anymore because all the, all, all the fighting will be done. And he continues on in uh, verses 6 to 8 as well. Notice he says, verse 6, it starts off, in that day, the end of verse 7 uh, it says, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forever. Now, the thing of, of a passage like this is Israel, as they go through the years, um, they, they taste some of this. Right? There, are, there actually are times of uh, victory where God's, uh, the enemies of God's people are defeated and, and God's people experience a little bit of relief and peace. But it's just it's very short-lived, right? So we get a little taste, but when it says there at the end of verse 7, from this time forth and forever, you, you, you keep being told it's still future. That day is still coming. So now 9 through 5-6, uh, uh, or 5-5, five, five, we have three couplets. Uh, just notice the beginning of verse 9 says, Now, why do you cry aloud? Verse 11, now, many nations in 5-1, now, Muster your troops. All three of these sections starting off with now. And then all three of them follow the exact same pattern. First, oppression. And then redemption. Okay, so all three of them just follow that pattern. Oppression from the enemies and God's redemption coming. Okay? Uh, let's go, just go to the second one. Uh, verse 11. We'll read that. Now, many nations are assembled against you. This is uh, a Zion in particular. So here's the oppression. Nations are gathered against you saying... Let us, or let her be defiled, and let us, our eyes gaze upon Zion. Ah, but they, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that God has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is Jerusalem. Because I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So notice what's going on here. Many nations are gathered together, and the prophet says, but what they don't understand is God is the one that brought them together for a purpose, to crush them. right? Because God is going to come and shatter the enemies of God's people. He's going to gather them against God's people, and then shatter them right there. Right uh, now, in five and five, five one and following, we're actually told the figure who's going to do this. So God is going to come; He's going to shatter the enemies. And who's going to do it? Verse one. Now muster your troops. Oh, daughter of troops is again talking about Jerusalem. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the on the cheek. Siege is the picture of an uh, army 
uh, gathered around the city, so nobody can get out of the city. So they, they've surrounded the city. Siege is laid against them. This is, uh, again, this oppression from other countries. Now, with a rod, they strike the judge or the ruler of Israel on the cheek. This is the oppression following the same pattern. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Again, oppression to then middle of verse three, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand, the ruler from Bethlehem, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, that shepherd from Bethlehem to the ends of the earth. There we have it again. And he shall be their peace. So verses 1 to 5 in this section then actually clarifies who is going to be this Davidic king. It's going to be one who's Bethlehem born, because that's where David's from. And he's going to bring back that dynasty that David had. That's actually what he talks about in 4.8, the former dominion, the former kingdom, which is very common in the prophets, always pointing back to David, the golden age. But that wasn't the true golden age. That's to come when the one who's born in Bethlehem. All right, we're going to wrap this part up, and then we're going to go into Matthew. Uh, but just so you caught this again, Micah's whole message in this section to Israel, both to the north and to the south, is that, yes, God's discipline is upon you. And, yes, it's going to get worse. But a golden age is coming. The Davidic king will come. He's, when he comes, he's going to shatter the enemies of God's people, and he's going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. And that one who comes to shatter and to shepherd is going to be born in Bethlehem. He actually doesn't tell us born in Bethlehem here, but he's coming from Bethlehem, where David is from. Okay, you caught that? That's what you have to hear from Micah. Let's now go into Matthew chapter 2 and hear a very familiar story, maybe for some. We'll let the Bible speak and not the nativity scenes, because Nativity scenes aren't always totally accurate. They're fine and helpful, but they're not always totally accurate. So let's just follow the story. So now we understand the message of Micah. Uh, let's now just experience the story, walk through it, and then we'll examine our own hearts uh, from the story. It starts off. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So we'll stop there for a minute. We, Matthew first just gives us the setting of the story, which is very exciting, actually. We're introduced to the, some new characters of the story, these wise men. And they're coming from the east. Now, we really don't know a whole lot about these wise men in history. Uh, we're told a lot about them, or there's a lot of ideas about who they are. They were even given names uh, centuries later. Um, most likely, I would assume that those aren't the real names. Uh, we're oftentimes thought that there's three of them. That's because they give three gifts at the end, but we really don't know. It could have been two, at least, right? Because it's just wise men, it's plural. It could have been 12, it could have been 20. And most likely, they're probably coming with others with them. They clearly have wealth, because they're bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
uh, expensive spices that we'll, we'll hear of uh, later. So there's multiple of them coming, and they're coming from the east. We don't know exactly where. Uh, many think Babylon, which is very well could be, because they're known as Magi. That's the, the Greek, uh, that's what, how some of your translations might say it, the Magi. Uh, because Magi, um, you, you see, read about, a lot about them in, in Daniel, remember? <clears throat> in, in fact, Daniel was actually put in charge of the Magi, in charge of the wise men. Because one of the, one of the things that uh, Magi would do is try to interpret dreams. Or they would be involved in astrology. Things like this. Well, Daniel, if you remember, he, he interpreted dreams, not himself, but God gave him the revelation of the dream, and then he told them. So then the king put Daniel in charge of the Magi, or the wise men. And so many think uh, that uh, most likely uh, that Daniel had then continued to teach the wise men the scriptures, and that over the years the traditions continued to be handed down, that this promise from Numbers that a star shall rise out of Jacob is what they're looking for. Now, whether or not that's true or not, we don't know, but we do know that wise men and magi were, were very common throughout uh, those, uh, throughout all the lands. Uh, but they're coming from the east, and somehow they know something of the, the Jewish scriptures. The, uh, many of the Jews did not return home after the Babylon, uh, Babylonian exile. Even Daniel himself did not return home with the, the people coming back to Jerusalem. So somehow they've learned uh, to look for a star, and they saw it. And so they traveled. If they traveled from Babylon, let's, for the sake of the discussion, let's assume maybe they did, that would be roughly 800 miles of traveling. Now, if you can travel by camel 20 miles a day, which is pretty significant, that would be 40 days travel. However long it is, it's not like getting on a frontier airline, right? It's going to take a long time. They saw a star. There's a lot of thoughts on what the stars was a comet a supernova who knows what it was whatever it was it was a star that they saw recognizing declaring that the king of the jews has been born and later we'll see the star actually moves and directs them which so i have no problem just saying it was a miraculous star just like the the pillar of fire by night god leading these people to the king and so they show up in jerusalem just, now think about this. These are these wealthy guys from a different culture. They show up there, obviously probably look different, and they show up, and they start asking people, hey, where's the king, the king of the Jews? We saw his star. Now, in those days, Herod was actually known as king of the Jews because Herod was put as king over the Jewish people by the Roman government, and he was the, now the king over the Jews. So it is understandable why verse 3, we meet a big tension moment. It starts out exciting here. These, these wealthy guys come to visit Jesus, thinking Jerusalem must be the place because that's where the king of the Jews is, so the newborn king of the Jews would be. But we meet in verse 3, uh, someone that's not so happy about this news. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod in history, um, actually one of his superiors said that you'd be better off to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. Because Herod had killed a couple of his sons. Because any kind of sniff that he had that someone wanted to take over his throne... He'd off him. 
He took out, he had multiple wives. He took out one of his favorite ones because he felt threatened. He was, he was a man full of paranoia. And so he, he was, this was Herod the Great. He had done a lot of great infrastructure uh, in the community. Uh, but in terms of guarding his throne, uh, he was very paranoid. And he would kill people if he felt threatened. So when people then are going around and he catches wind of this, that, hey, there's these wealthy guys from the east came with these expensive gifts, and they're looking for the king of the Jews. They said he was born. You, you can bet he's not happy. He's feeling a little bit threatened. And then if you read there, it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, why would that be? Most likely, it's probably that Israel was troubled because they know who Herod is. And they know the type of guy he is. And they know when he gets bad news or he feels threatened, people die. Right? In fact, a couple chapter, uh, paragraphs later, we're going to see that. He kills all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and, uh, and younger. He's trying to find this child. So it's most likely, if you, if you know someone that uh, like lives with someone that has a very bad temper or just is very hard to live with, you, you, you can kind of see, envision, when they, they know when that person gets bad news, it's going to be a hard day, right? And so that's probably what uh, the people of Israel are feeling right now. They're troubled as well. When Herod catches wind of this, what is he going to do? So that there's now tension in the air. Now, verse 4, uh, Herod, then he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So this would be the leaders of the Jewish people, the, the, the men who know the, the scriptures in all Jerusalem with him. So he, he gathers him. Now, I, I don't know if he's uh, more gathering them, you know, in, a, in, in, in trying to put on a show or if he's angry. You've got to try and envision that for yourself. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. So is he more saying, is he throwing stuff? Is he slamming on the table? Where is this baby? Tell me right now, where is this Christ supposed to be born? Or is he, hey, why don't you think about this with me? I heard that their new king is to be born. Do you know where he's supposed to be born? Hmm. I don't know. You have to think about that yourself. They respond, though. They tell him. Well, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. Because that's what the prophet wrote, the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they just simply tell him, that's what Micah said, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, because this passage from Micah became very well known as the Messianic Age, the, the ruler who's going to come from Bethlehem. Now, Matthew changes a little bit of the quote to, to help us understand part of the point here. He, he says, Bethlehem is by no means least among the rulers, where Micah said, Bethlehem's quite small. It's a know-nothing town. But Matthew's point is, yes, it's very small, but it's not insignificant because Messiah is coming from there. So he's actually saying the same thing on a different side of the coin. Uh, and then he adds this, will, who will shepherd my people, either uh, emphasizing the, the kind of summation of the rest of the passage, or this also is a direct quote from 2 Samuel uh, about David, that David will shepherd his people. Just to make very clear, this is the Davidic king 
who's coming. And what happens when that Davidic king who's born from Bethlehem, when he comes, what is he going to do, remember? Two things. He's going to shatter God's, the enemies of God's people, and he's going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. Okay, so now, as the reader, I, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what the, the, the chief priest told Herod at that point, if they told him all that background, but as the reader, Matthew would want us to know that, and what it raises the expectation, and it raises the tension of the story. Because if there's tension in the story, we know, okay, Herod is not going to like this child, he's going to want to off this child, but what did Micah say? When that person comes, that figure, he's going to crush the enemies of God's people. So Herod might be going down here. And then he's going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. So there's this tension and expectation raised in the reader as we read that. And then he continues on. So Herod then uh, summons the wise men. He says, secretly. And here I do think he puts on a show. And he ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. So here, I, I do think he's putting on a show. Again, I don't know. This is, I, I think as you read the text, you really want to try to envision what's going on. So I, you know, I, I just kind of picture Herod bringing them in and saying, Hey, so thankful you guys are in our city. What brings you here? You lovely men. Oh, a, a king is to be born, king of the Jews. I have been waiting for that very day. That is such wonderful news. Well, did you know that that king is supposed to come from Bethlehem? That is what our prophet tells us. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I am so busy with things here in the city that I would go myself to go find the child, but I cannot. Would you do me a favor? You go, now that you know where to go, go to Bethlehem, you find the baby. When you have worshiped him, you come and tell me exactly where I may find him, so I too may follow and worship this newborn king. And so off they go. And then I picture Herod going, bye-bye, bye-bye. <laughs> it's very sinister. Now, again, as the reader, there's a little tension in the air, right? Because there's excitement. Okay, they know where to find this baby. But what's going to happen? Are they going to tell? But, of course, if Micah's prophecy comes true, Herod's going to be off anyways. So there's all this, like, swimming around as you read the story. Uh, verse 9, they left, they listened to the king, they go on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, now it actually moves. Before it was probably stationary in the sky, but now the star actually goes before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, I mean, what would you do? I mean, this, this, this is a tradition, remember, like that has been handed down through centuries. They've probably heard of this as they grew up. 
to look for the star. Finally, the star appears. Now they've traveled. They have all these gifts. They show up in Jerusalem. They can't find the baby. Now they've been told where the child is. This star actually moves and guides them, finally stops at the place. I mean, good night. Have you ever been on a long journey and you finally get there? I mean, many of you know we like to drive to Florida. I think it's one of the greatest places on earth. We drive through the night, and I am so tired because I've driven all night. But there's something that happens. I feel it when I cross that border. Something happens. It's like this switch that happens. (laughs) I'm here. Everybody's sleeping. I'm so full of joy because I'm here. I mean, these, these men have to be incredibly excited. Look at what the text says. He piles it on. They rejoiced. No, no, no. They rejoiced exceedingly. No, 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 no. They rejoiced exceedingly with joy. No, no, no. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, what a scene this must have been. And then they go in the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now notice what Matthew does. When they saw the child, they were full of joy. And when they saw the baby, they lost it. They fell down and worshipped. Truly, they are wise men. They open up their treasures, and they offer him Gifts, royal gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. Regardless of whether or not these are supposed to represent anything or not, they are expensive gifts that you give to a superior. These men from the east come and they find the baby, they worship, and they offer these expensive gifts to the child. Now that is a scene of great joy. And now, as the reader, the tension is through the roof. I mean, most questions have been answered now. They're going to find, they find the baby, they worship the child like true wise men do. But now what's going to happen? Is Herod going to come? And if Herod comes, is he going to destroy Herod? What, or is Herod going to destroy him? What's going to happen? And there's a little bit of twist in the story. We, we now know that this, this Davidic king born from Bethlehem is indeed going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. This, even the, 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 the men coming from the east outside of Israel is a little bit of a hint of that, right? It's, it's shepherding people outside of the Jewish descent. Okay, so we, we now know that. That is confirmed. He's coming from David. He's going to shepherd God's people to the end of the earth. What about shattering God's people? It doesn't happen. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed and their own, to their own country by another way. We have a little bit of cliffhanger out there. What about shattering the enemies of God's people? Well, you have to read the rest of the story of Matthew. Because he did indeed come to crush the enemies of God's people. But it's not the Herod enemies. Because those aren't the real enemies. Those aren't the big enemies. There's a much bigger enemy out there. It's the enemies of sin and death. Those are the very enemies that he came to crush. Because here's the thing. You know, the people enemies, the Herods of the world, that we, we feel are so big and massive, 
We could have total peace in our land and still go face the greater enemy and experience the judgment of God for all eternity. That's a terrible outcome. I mean, which would you rather have? Face physical enemies all your days on this pilgrimage and then actually get to face God and be welcomed in to peace and presence of the, of the Lord forever? Or would you rather have peace on earth and then face God on judgment day and experience the wrath of God forever? The, the much greater enemy is sin and death, and that's the one that Jesus, remember, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, there will come a day when there, those, those uh, swords are made into pruning, pruning hooks. That's not now. Jesus came first to destroy the greater enemies of sin and death, to bring God's people back to himself, and so that one day, when we have our, our final time of closing our eyes, we will actually see God and be welcomed into his presence. Because of this king, the Davidic ruler from Bethlehem came and destroyed our greater enemy. He shattered him from the inside out. And he shepherds us through all of our days here. So I just want to understand what Matthew is trying to communicate here. is simply saying, join, join the wise men in worshiping this Jesus, the Davidic king. Bethlehem born, the one who shatters our enemies and shepherds God's people to the end of the earth. The question is, how do we respond uh, to this message? I don't know if Matthew's doing this or not. I think it lays out nice uh, to just consider the characters in the story and ask, who do we most line up with in the story? You have three main characters or three main people responding to Jesus, and we just ask, well, where, where are we? How do we line up? First, you have the Herods who want to dethrone Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is the king over all the universe. And Herod, Herod wants to dethrone Jesus. Herod feels threatened by the rule of Jesus. You see, Herod and those Herod-like want to rule their own world. They They don't want Jesus over their kingdom. So they resist it. And maybe you're here this morning and that, that is you. You hear the message of Jesus, you really don't want it. You don't want Jesus to be king over you. You really want to be the master of your own domain, the one who rules your own destiny. You're the one in control. You don't want someone else over you telling you what, what's right and what's wrong. That's all stuffy. Now, the thing is, you may get away with that for a decade for two decades, for however long God, God graciously gives you breath. But you will indeed face this Jesus. And everything you stand on that feels so secure will one day be gone. It will be stripped away. And you will face this Jesus. And if that's you, I, I believe God would bring you here today to say there's a better way. There's a better way. It's to come under this king and submit to him. And come under God's wing and under God's care. Let him be the shepherd and ruler of your life. By confessing your sin before God. Trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And becoming one of his people. So there's the Herods. But then we also have the leaders of God's people. You know, they're, they're, you might call them, they, they want to share a throne. Made up that word, I think. I don't know. So Herod wanted to dethrone Jesus. The leaders of, uh, of the Jewish people, they want to share a throne. Sort of like 
hey, okay, Jesus, uh, you know, I, see, for them, they, they know the answers, right? Hey, where's, where's Messiah supposed to be born? Well, right here, Bethlehem. Because I went to service. I know that. I teach my kids that. Right? They, they have all the answers. But they, really, they really don't want Jesus to invade too much of their life. Right? Now, this can, this can be believer and unbeliever alike, I would, I would think. I mean, I, before I became a follower of Jesus, I remember about a month or so before, uh, one of my coworkers, my, uh, my boss, she asked me how I know uh, it's going to be good for me when I die. And I said, well, because Jesus died for my sins. And I didn't, I didn't worship Jesus at all. But I had the answer. I had my card. Right? It's, it's this idea that Jesus, okay, I, I'll say the right things about you. I'll, I, I like that. But I'm also going to be king. And there, there can be a little bit of overlap. But there's these other categories that uh, as long as you don't mess with my kingdom, I won't mess with your kingdom. Huh? So leave the, the parts of my schedule that I like. That's me to control. There's parts of my career, that's for me to choose. There's parts of my relationship, that's for me to choose. Or all sorts of things. Things that we really don't want Jesus to come and invade our life too much. We just want to kind of share throne with Jesus. We can both be kings. Jesus won't have it. That's, that's not part of the deal. He says, I will be the king. You will be my people, my servant. I will care for you. Now, the thing is, as much as we are afraid of that, that is great news. Jesus is trying to free us from ourselves. He looks at us and says, you'd make terrible kings. Haven't you, haven't you seen what you do when you're in control? And of course, sin deceives us constantly, and we constantly run after wrong things, and we find ourselves in misery. So we're either like Herod and want to dethrone Jesus, or we want to just share the throne with Jesus, or maybe we want to be like the wise men and enthrone Jesus. In our hearts, say, yes, Jesus is the king. And be willing to do it at great cost. Be willing to go to the ends of the earth, if God were to call us, someone like they did, and give costly gifts. Be willing to lose on earth, because we get to worship Christ. And when we do, when we strip ourselves of all of our hopes and dreams and place them at the foot of this child, we actually find exceeding joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right? Because it's no longer us in control. God's in control. The problem is we're so distracted. We get so easily duped by things of the world and want them to, we want them more than Jesus. I do it too. Right? Or we get so familiar that we don't think about it. We don't really think about the greater enemies of sin and death that has been destroyed. Brother and sister, do you realize that there's, there is going to come a day you're, you're going to close your eyelids for the last time on this earth you're going to breathe one of those heavy breaths. Your family will they'll look and they'll see that you, your soul is gone. And you're going to stand before King Jesus. And in that day, if you are under the blood of Christ, you will realize 
with complete knowledge that death is dead. That Christ really shattered your, your biggest enemy. And you will be with him forever. He will shepherd you for all your days. That is glorious. And that is worth giving our lives for. And letting go of the grip of the world and saying, yes, King Jesus, shepherd me to the end of my days. And with that, we'll go to the Lord's Supper in great memory of receiving the, the gift of Christ, the one who came to shatter our enemies in his death and to bring us back to God, to shepherd us to the end of our days, to the ends of the earth.